For journalists all over the world, reporting true crime stories is a day-to-day -day reality. But what do journalists do when that reality is so dark that it feels like we've reached a new depth of human cruelty? For the first time, a network of 600 of these journalists have invited us into the darkest recesses of their world. They've shared stories of some of the most disturbing cases ever reported, past and present. From Podomo and Vespucci, this is The Darkness Vaults. A note to listeners. Due to the nature of their subject matter, some stories discuss suicide, sexual assault, and may include detailed descriptions of violence. Please take care while listening. A deadly secret. In early September 2004, Hurricane Ivan crossed the Gulf of Mexico and headed for the United States. It had already ripped through the Caribbean, its 160-mile-per-hour winds flinging yachts onto land and pulling up three-storey-tall trees by their roots. As it surged over the Gulf, Ivan created waves over 130 feet tall, and the United States braced for impact, ordering thousands of residents to evacuate their homes and seek shelter. On September 2nd, Charlie Brandt and his wife, Terry, decided it was time to get out. They were Piners, the name given to residents of Big Pine Key, a small community on a fragile shred of an island in the Florida Keys. The Piners would be right in Hurricane Ivan's warpath, so Charlie and Terry packed up some belongings and hopped into their white Subaru. It wasn't easy to abandon their home of 15 years, a thousand-square-foot house right on the beach, but such were the hazards of life on the water. The last time a storm like this hit the US, 43 people were killed in South Florida. When they got in that Subaru, the couple was painfully aware that they might never see their home again. Charlie and Terry headed to Orlando, the roads jammed with other loaded-up cars making their escape. The plan was to stay with Terry's niece, Michelle, an advertising executive with the Golf Channel, who owned a home with four bedrooms, a pool and a screened-in porch, a great place to camp out while the storm did its dirty work. But almost as soon as Charlie and Terry arrived, they started hearing good news about the hurricane. As Ivan roared through the Gulf, it had been downgraded to a Category 4 storm. And now, it was expected to move further inland. Instead of hammering Big Pine Key with full force, it would only graze it. Terry wanted to head back home right away, but Charlie was enjoying Michelle's company. She was a pretty 38-year-old with a bright smile, deep dark eyes and playful dirty blonde bangs, and Charlie sometimes called her by his private nickname, Victoria, as in Victoria's Secret, the famously sexy line of lingerie. Charlie and Terry had been staying with Michelle for more than 10 days when one of Michelle's friends called her up. 
The friend was planning a visit of her own that night, but Michelle told her not to bother coming. Charlie and Terry had been drinking pretty heavily, Michelle said, and they'd started fighting. There was generally a bad vibe around the house. Just as the tourists kept away from the keys when the clouds of the hurricane roared in, so it was better to steer clear of Michelle's place until her guests were gone. The friend hung up, not thinking much of it. But after that night, Michelle stopped answering calls. The phone rang and rang, as if echoing through an evacuated house. Michelle's mother grew worried. Her daughter was a successful professional, not likely to fall silent like this. She called Debbie Knight, one of Michelle's friends, and asked her to check on her daughter. Just stop by the house and make sure everything is okay. When Debbie arrived at Michelle's place, she saw her car in the driveway. Two newspapers wrapped in plastic were slumped on the doorstep, and the mailbox was overstuffed with flyers. Debbie rang the bell, but no one answered. She tried the door. It was locked. So she went around to the garage, hoping to enter the house that way. But when she reached the glass garage door and looked inside, she froze. Dangling from the roof beams between the blue Mazda and the black Akura was the body of a man. Like a tourist, he wore blue shorts and a white polo, and a yellow bedsheet was cinched around his throat. In this heavy, humid weather, Charlie's body had already advanced pretty far into decomposition. Debbie turned away from the purple corpse and called the police. Officers forced their way into the house and entered the living room. That's where they found Terry. Charlie's wife was sitting on the couch in nothing but a yellow T-shirt, an empty wine glass on the table. She'd been stabbed in the chest seven times, her body less decomposed than Charlie's sitting here in the air-conditioned house. Then the officers headed upstairs and along the hall into the master bedroom. What they found there made this seem less like a bedroom and more like an operating theatre. Two things were clear. The first was that the body on the bed was Michelle's. The second was that all the doors were locked from inside. The only person who knew what happened to these women was hanging from the roof of the garage. Around midnight, Angela Brandt was awakened by the phone. It was her father. He told her that bodies had been discovered at the house of Terry's niece. As soon as he said that, a secret unspoken knowledge passed between father and daughter. A couple of days later, the police in Orlando interviewed Angela. They were looking for some explanation for what they'd found at the house. It just didn't line up. Everyone knew Charlie Brandt as a quiet, unassuming guy. Nothing about him suggested an urge toward explosive violence, let alone what he'd done to Michelle Jones in that bedroom. For now, the best motive they could come up with was that the violence somehow related to a childhood trauma. Angela's younger sister had already told the police that when she was just three years old, their mother had died in a car accident. Now the police put it to Angela. 
Do you think that accident had something to do with Charlie's crime? The unspoken knowledge once again pooled at the front of Angela's mind. This was the end of the line. She had to tell the story. No, she said. Her younger sister was wrong. Whatever happened at the house didn't have anything to do with the car accident. In fact, despite what her sister believed, there never had been an accident. Their mother had died a different way. Charlie and Angela's parents were German immigrants who'd originally settled in Connecticut. Their father, Herbert, was a project engineer for an agricultural equipment manufacturer, and their mother, Ilsa, was a devoted homemaker. When Herbert got the job, the family had to uproot and relocate to Fort Wayne, Indiana, a manufacturing town still enjoying its post-war boom. But despite the prosperity, the Brandt family didn't like Fort Wayne, with its flat, uninterrupted horizon, landlocked in the middle of the country. Somehow, they never seemed to put down roots there, always longing nostalgically for Connecticut, and looking forward to some other, better place to live. Maybe that other place was Florida. That's where the Brants took all their vacations. At the soonest opportunity, they leapt at the chance to pack up the car and drive 20 hours down to the coast. The rolling waves and salted air were everything they longed for in Fort Wayne. In the mornings, Herbert would take his young son Charlie out hunting for birds and small game. And then the men, chests puffed with the pride of the hunt, would join Angela and Ilsa on the beach. Ilsa would be tending to their younger two daughters, no older than three, and she was starting to show signs of being pregnant once again. These were the happiest times for the family, but every now and then a darkness intruded on their idyll, like a storm cloud gathered on the gulf. During their vacation over Christmas break in 1970, Herbert and Charlie went hunting with their family dog. The dog was already prone to misbehave, and it had fallen to Charlie at age 13 to take care of it. He was the one who had to clean up the dog shit left on the floor, and he was the one who had to try to train it. Somehow, the dog particularly tormented Charlie's father. It's as if the dog's ears were congenitally unable to register Herbert's voice. He would shout and shout, but the dog simply wouldn't respond, off on a sniffing adventure, totally indifferent to the calls of its master. It drove Herbert crazy, and it drove him crazy on the hunt that morning. The dog ran off into the bushes, and no matter how forcefully Herbert shouted, it wouldn't return. That did it. Herbert cocked his rifle and fired a few rounds into the bushes. Later, he'd say he only wanted to scare the dog, let it know that its disobedience would be answered by the frightening clap of a gunshot, but maybe an unconscious urge caused his aim to be true. The bullet went right through the dog, and little Charlie saw the life flicker out of those soft brown eyes. But he didn't allow himself to cry. He swallowed his tears. He was a hunter. He was a man. When the vacation was over, 
the family wasn't quite as relaxed as usual as they got in the car for the journey back to Indiana. With every mile north, the color seemed to drain from the world, and they pulled into the driveway to face the drab routine of home. A thick layer of snow blanketed everything, the exact opposite of the Florida coast. For Charlie, this was an especially unhappy homecoming. He'd procrastinated a school assignment that was meant to be due before the Christmas break, and now there was no avoiding it. On the evening of January 3rd, 1971, all was calm in the Brandt household. The family had eaten a simple dinner of pork chops, green beans and hash browns, and then dispersed for the night. Charlie's sister Angela was upstairs in her bedroom, with worshipful posters of the Beatles on the walls. The youngest two daughters were already asleep, and his parents were in the bathroom. Herbert was shaving in the mirror while Ilsa took a bath in Red Time magazine. By now, Ilsa was eight months pregnant, and she liked to soothe the strain of carrying her big round belly in the warm waters of the bath. The only abnormality in the house was down in the kitchen, where Charlie sat at the table, struggling with his assignment. With no warning or explanation, something in his brain began to break. And then all at once, he wasn't himself anymore. Charlie was a thing, like a machine. A machine under the control of some mysterious other force. In this trance-like state, the 13-year-old boy found Herbert's 9mm handgun in the drawer. His father had taught him how to load the gun, believing accidents were less likely to happen if Charlie knew how to wield it. With the gun loaded and ready, Charlie sat down at the kitchen table and continued working on the assignment, as if he'd just retrieved a snack. The gun seemed to throb in his pants, making demands of its own. Suddenly he stood and climbed the stairs to the bathroom, where Herbert was shaving and Ilsa was bathing. Before either of them could react, Charlie opened the door, raised the gun and started shooting. The first three shots hit his mother in the tub. The bullets pierced her ballooning belly, instantly killing her unborn son in the womb. Blood mixed into the soapy water as Charlie kept shooting, emptying the chambers into Herbert, the shaving cream still on his face. Then Charlie turned and left the bathroom and headed for Angela's room. Bleeding from multiple holes, Herbert clawed his way to the tub and yanked the stopper, not wanting his wife to drown in the bloody water. But it was too late. She was dead. Meanwhile, Angela had heard the shots, but before she could make any decisive movement, Charlie had entered her room. He pulled the trigger, but the gun just clicked. He'd emptied it into his parents. Angela would forever remember her brother's hypnotic gaze, an alien presence controlling the space behind his eyes. She lunged for him and wrestled the gun away and kicked it under the bed. At some point in the struggle, he snapped out of the trance as if he'd been sleepwalking through the slaughter. He looked to Angela in bewilderment. 
the reality of what he'd just done beginning to make itself apparent through the fog of his possession. Angela knew not to disturb or antagonize him. Instead, she said she'd help him. She was his sister, his ally. Nothing bad needed to come of this. They could all run away, all the siblings together. They could live on a hippie commune. Charlie seemed relieved to let her take charge. All he had to do, she said, was go to the top floor and fetch some blankets. That way, their younger sisters could sleep on the way to the commune. Charlie nodded, and they went to the staircase together. But something about him didn't quite trust her. He started walking backwards up the stairs, his fearful eyes glued to Angela. As soon as he got halfway up the stairs, she bolted, charging down to the bottom floor and bursting out of the door and sprinting through the snow for the neighbor's house. Behind her, all she heard was Charlie's hopeless childish scream. You promised you wouldn't leave me. By the time the police arrested Charlie, there was no trace of whatever unconscious state he'd snapped into at the kitchen table. The boy described the sensation of being programmed to do it. Just as the gun was designed to shoot the bullet, so he was designed to shoot the gun. Everything fit together like a perfectly engineered mechanism. The police tried and failed to find a motive for the murder. Some pointed to the killing of the dog, but then why would Charlie shoot his mother as well? Others pointed to the pressure of school, but then why turn the gun on his family at all? Three psychiatric evaluations failed to uncover an explanation. In the end, Charlie would spend a year in the hospital before being released back into the care of his family. His father, Herbert, had survived. And when the police took Charlie to visit him, the little boy in the back seat asked for their permission to cry. Meanwhile, Herbert made Angela promise never to mention the killing again. The two youngest daughters had slept through the entire thing, and if they ever asked, they'd be told their mother died in a tragic car accident. At the funeral, little Charlie wore leg shackles, and that was the last visible sign that the boy had ever been involved with how Ilsa ended up in the casket. Angela never uttered the truth of that night. Not until 2004, when the police in Orlando asked her about Charlie Brandt, wondering how a human being could ever do what he had done. With Hurricane Ivan safely passed, the police went down to Big Pine Key and searched Charlie and Terry's beach house. What they found began pointing to a method, if not quite a reason, for the madness of the murders. Like the stacks of Victoria's secret magazines that Charlie meticulously hoarded. That was his pet name for Terry's niece, Michelle, whose body they'd found in the master bedroom. Maybe he'd harbored a sexual obsession, an unrequited desire that he suddenly couldn't bear any longer. But if Charlie was obsessed with Michelle, or any woman for that matter, it wasn't strictly sexual. 
The police also found books about human anatomy and surgery, and behind a bedroom door, a poster had been tacked to the wall. Intended for the use of medical students, it depicted a woman, half flesh, half skeleton. Was this how Charlie Brandt perceived women? Did he see through the supple flesh and smiling faces into the bones and skulls beneath? When they began trawling through his computer, the police found search terms that spoke to what he'd eventually done in Orlando. Dead women autopsies. Disembowelment. Now the police started examining the years between Charlie's stay in the hospital and the day he hung himself in Michelle's garage. In a strange way, they discovered shooting his parents had got little Charlie Brandt what he'd always wanted, out of boring Fort Wayne, Indiana. Upon release in the early 1970s, his father Herbert took the family to live down in Florida as if they might just stay on holiday forever a permanent escape from the truth. But it didn't take long for Herbert to realise that he was better off as an engineer back in Indiana. The problem was that, by now, Charlie had settled in at high school and Herbert didn't want to disrupt him. These children had already been uprooted too many times. All his life, Charlie would hang back, observing. That's what you did when you were always the new kid, always trying to decipher the mysterious customs of the people around you, hoping to crack the code so maybe you'd be included. So instead of taking Charlie with him back to Indiana, Herbert brought his own parents over from Germany to take care of him until he graduated from high school. Charlie's sister, Angela, was already living on her own, and now Herbert took his youngest daughters and returned to Indiana. From now on, Charlie was on his own. In 1984, Charlie received his degree in electronics and became a radio specialist for Ford Aerospace in Astor, Florida. It was in nearby Daytona Beach that he met Terry, his future wife. They'd been fixed up on a blind date. Not knowing what Charlie even looked like was a fitting way to meet a man Terry would in some ways never truly know. When they were married in 1986, the ceremony was so private that not even their relatives were invited to attend. Charlie's sister Angela would forever wonder whether he told his bride about that fateful night in 1971. When Charlie grabbed the knives from the kitchen and attacked Terry on the couch in her niece's house in Orlando, was he a complete stranger to her again, like on their first blind date? Or did Terry always wonder if this might happen again, that some mysterious force would put him under control and there would be nothing she could say to stop him? Five years after getting married, Charlie and Terry Brandt moved into their dream home in Big Pine Key and became Piners for Life. That's the house where officers found the anatomy poster and the books about surgery. And that's when a memory got triggered in their minds and a larger, more sinister picture began to clarify. The year Charlie and Terry moved in, now that the police thought of it, 
wasn't that also the year they found that woman under the bridge? It was July 16, 1989, when a fisherman found a woman floating face down under the North Pine Channel Bridge. She would be identified as Sherry Perisher, a 38-year-old who lived on a dinghy, one of the many drifters who gathered on the Gulf. What happened to her clearly wasn't accidental. Her throat had been so brutally slashed, her head was almost severed, attached only by the spinal cord and shreds of flesh. The case went cold almost at once, the answers to her murder washing out to sea. But now, 15 years later, the police wondered if her death might be linked to the man who'd lived in the nearby beach house. They circled back and re-examined the evidence, and sure enough, Charlie Brandt fit the description of a man seen down by the bridge that night. Officers measured the distance between the Brandt house and where they'd found the body, and it was less than a thousand feet. And when they interviewed Terry's brother, he told them something shocking. Terry had once told him that she suspected Charlie of the murder. Suddenly, the story of Charlie Brandt began to fill in. He wasn't just responsible for two crimes, with a barren terrain of good behaviour in between. Once the police started tracing his movements over the years and correlating them with cold case files, they realised he'd been killing all along. There was Darlene Tuller, a sex worker from Miami, whose body was found near a Florida highway in 1995. Her head was missing and her heart had been cut out and wrapped in plastic as if some amateur surgery had gone wrong. In Charlie's anatomy books, the heart was a particular object of fetish. He'd clipped a detailed picture of a human heart from a newspaper and used it as a bookmark. But even more damningly, Charlie kept detailed records of the mileage on his car, and on the night Darlene went missing, he'd logged 100 miles. The distance between Miami and his home in Big Pine Key. Wherever he'd gone in life, a brutal murder had occurred. One that included a medical mutilation. Like Lisa Saunders, a 20-year-old who'd been dragged from her car, beaten and stabbed to death in 1988. When the body was discovered, her heart was missing. Some suspected that vultures had picked it out and devoured it. But perhaps the real bird of prey was Charlie Brandt. And there was Carol Sullivan, just 12 years old, who'd been abducted while waiting for the school bus back in 1978. Her skull was found in a bucket. Her body never recovered. Charlie Brandt lived just nearby. This gruesome constellation of corpses connected that night in 1971 when Charlie shot his parents to that fateful day in 2004 when he killed his wife Terry and her niece Michelle. Altogether, police would link him to 26 unsolved murders. The rampage was relentless. If his sister Angela thought he'd snapped out of that trance when they struggled for the gun... She was wrong. It had never ended.
But still, there was something special about those first and last murders. The victims weren't strangers, the sort of anonymous corpses a medical student might learn to dissect. Instead, they were the people closest to him, his parents, his wife, his family. If Charlie was a machine, under the control of some mysterious power, what extra energy was compelling him those nights? The police on the scene would never forget what they found in Michelle's bedroom in Orlando, after her friend called in the sight of Charlie swinging from the roof of the garage. The alien power behind Charlie's eyes had been hungry on this day. Police entered the bedroom, barely noticing the bras and panties all cut up and scattered like confetti on the floor. Michelle was on the bed. She'd been stabbed only once, right in the chest, as if Charlie wanted his corpse to be pristine for the autopsy. Then he'd cut off her head and placed it beside her, the eyes observing her own dissection. He'd amputated the left leg at the hip, just as the books instructed. Then he'd sliced off her breasts and carved out her heart and set the specimens neatly on the cover. The operation was a success. And then something must have intervened. A sense that he'd come to the end. A realization, perhaps, that there was only one way he could kill this urge in himself for good. Charlie changed out of his blood-soaked clothes into a white polo and shorts, then gathered some yellow bedsheets and went looking for a sturdy roof beam. He found it in the garage. He climbed the stepladder, attached the noose to the ceiling and cinched it around his throat. With one decisive kick, the stepladder fell away and Charlie plunged. In the end, whatever alien presence had been commanding him all these years wasn't in total control. Not completely. From Podimo and Vespucci, this is The Darkness Vaults. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. For early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts.